Good morning. I think this is what's called giving somebody a warm welcome. <clears throat> I've even taken my jacket off. That doesn't happen very often. I'm going to read um, another couple of verses to you. I'm in Acts chapter 28, and I'm going to read verse 23. And Paul is in, in Rome. He's under house arrest, but it's very loose, and he's meeting with people. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now to Romans chapter 16. Just going to read a few verses here. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Pris Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. We go down to verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Pastor Ryan is going through a series in Acts, and he's uh, somewhere around about um, chapter 16. So uh, I'm going to get out of his way and go to the very end of Acts so he can continue his, uh, his flow of his series. It stands uh, 29,029 feet high. It arguably is the tallest mountain in the world. Some say there's another one called K2. Some say, well, that's the highest. I think Mount Everest is the highest. Not only is it the highest, but it is the deadliest. 2014, the expeditions climbing Everest were halted because 16 Nepali were killed in an avalanche. April 2015, a 7.8 earthquake hit. 850 Nepalese were killed and 19 climbers at the base camp of Everest were killed. It was reopened for climbing April 2016. Already we have seen four deaths and two climbers are missing in action. There is a common cause to the death of the climbers. When someone from Nepal dies on the mountain, they die usually from an avalanche. When someone like you or me or a climber dies, they don't die from an avalanche. Typically, they climb above 8,000 feet, they get nausea, they get dizziness, they find it difficult to walk. They begin spewing up a thick pink liquid. Fluid builds up in their lungs. They lose consciousness and they fall. And typically, it's a fatal fall. It's called altitude sickness. There is an exception. 
A Sherpa never dies from altitude sickness. Sherpas are from Nepal. They live high in the mountains. And they, the doctors and the researchers have looked at them and they've tried to figure out why does a Sherpa never die even at 29,000 feet of altitude. They discovered that the Sherpas have got the ability to take in oxygen at a much superior rate to you and me. They've also discovered that their, their blood vessels are able to carry that oxygen even to the, the limbs, the extremities, and even to the very smallest of their blood vessels. They always have oxygen fueling their body. They never sleep on the mountain. They never fall on the mountain. They never die from altitude sickness on the mountain. Now, my question to you this morning is, are you a Sherpa? Are you a Sherpa? Can you climb into the mountain of God without fear? Can you climb into his presence and stand before him without death occurring? The psalmist cries out, Who may live on your holy mountain? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Can you? Will you? I spent two days with my wife this week at two different hospitals. Have you ever felt death? Have you ever heard death? Have you ever seen death? One day we will be called to that mountain. And one day he will call us to account. And you will need to know can you ascend without fear? There's three things you need to know to be that holy spiritual Sherpa. You need to know your history. You need to know your history. Now, Fox News has got a young reporter called Jesse Waters. And about every 10 days, they send Jesse to the streets of our cities or to a college campus. And usually he goes with three or four questions around a theme. So the week before Memorial Day, he hit the streets of Philadelphia. Historic event, historic city. He doesn't argue, he doesn't challenge, he just asks questions and the camera rolls. So I said to one young lady, we got Memorial Day coming up. We're going to remember the men and women that have fought and died to protect us and give us our freedom and give others freedom. That, that war of, of independence, 
Who did we fight against? France? Another one? That war of independence. Who did we fight against? Well, it must be Germany. The only change, they said, well, how about the Revolutionary War, young man? Who did we fight against? Oh, you hit my, you hit my weak spot, history. No idea. And then he changed his tact. He went to a young lady, he said, um, the Cold War. What was the Cold War all about? Climate change. That's a sad commentary on our nation. But I have to remind myself, when you point with one, there's three pointing back. So let's move from general history to spiritual history. We're going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions. So I'm not going to put you on the spot, but just think about this. When did the Protestant Reformation begin? That event that led to you being here today, when did it all begin? Most historians would say there was a monk in 1517, Roman Catholic monk, who became very disenchanted and who reached the conclusion the church was not teaching what the Bible teaches. And so he wrote 95 reasons why they were wrong. And he nailed them on the chapel door of Wittenberg. Martin Luther, the beginning of the Reformation. How about, how about the book of Acts that we've been reading from? When was it written? Probably 59 to 61 AD. How about where we've been reading from here in Acts 16? When did those events actually happen? How about 57 AD? So about 20 years after Christ died. But you, you need to know your history. You see, what's, what's happening here? These verses, these events, what's happening here? What, what time is it? There are three momentous arrivals. Number one, if you follow the personal pronouns, Personal pronouns, I, you, he, she, it, we, they, his, hers. You follow the personal pronouns. In verse 6, we're told Paul and his companions, his. Verse 7, when they came to Mysia. Verse 8, they passed by Mysia. Verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we, we, 
Not him, not his, not they. We. What's happening? Luke has just arrived. Luke, who wrote the book, wasn't there for every event. He compiled the materials. He collated. He wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But on this occasion, Luke has just arrived, and he's going to stay with him for a while. And then he'll leave him again, and then he'll return to them again. The second momentous arrival occurs when we see three no's. They wanted to go to Asia in verse 6, but they were kept from preaching by the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, they went down to Troas, which is a coastal town in western Turkey today. They wanted to preach, maybe doing a Billy Graham evangelism. No. No. You can't go to North Turkey. You can't go to West Turkey. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia, which is North Turkey. It moves from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of Jesus. It's a critical moment, critical event, and then there's a third momentous arrival. Verse 9, Paul's asleep. He has a nighttime vision. He sees this guy whom Luke tells us apparently looked like, was dressed like, spoke like a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is modern-day Greece. And we're told that this Macedonian calls to Paul to come over, or he begs, or he pleads. The word that's used there has a judicial background, but it's also used to mean there's an emergency. I need you urgently to come. So the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is paralyzed. Come. The leper falls on his knees in front of Jesus and says, Please, I plead with you, clean me. And Jairus, the synagogue leader, he comes to Jesus and he says, My daughter, my only daughter, is dying. And so this Macedonian man is not giving Paul a polite interview to come to dinner. He is urgently pleading with him, ardently saying, we are in desperate plight. We desperately need your help. Do you know your history? Do you know what's happening right here? This is a momentous event. The Lord came to a man called Abraham. He said, Abraham, Abraham, no longer Abraham, Abraham, father, because I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Paul, see the Macedonian? Nations, many nations. We've been to Jerusalem. We've been to Judea. 
We've been in Samaria, but now we need to get to the nations. Isaiah calls out, you will proclaim my glory among the nations. Paul, enough with Judea. Enough with synagogues. It's time for streets. It's time for campuses. It's time for Mars Hill. It's time for Rome. It's time for Ireland. Rahab gives protection to the spies. And she says, No, I want you to save me. I know who your God is. I've heard about your God. I know his strength and his power. I know that he will conquer the nations. I believe in him. I trust in him. Save me from the destruction that's going to occur in this city. Rahab, take the scarlet cord and hang it from your window. The scarlet cord that symbolizes your trusting in the blood of the sacrifice for your sins. The scarlet cord that says your hope is not in your works, but your sins are being passed to a substitute who will die for you in your place. Paul, I need you to go to the Rahabs of this world right now, right now. You need to know your history. You need to know your theology. This is not a sermonette for Christianettes. If you know today what you knew five years ago, shame on you. If that's all you know, shame on you. If all you know today about the Bible is what you knew three months ago, shame on you. If you were birthed spiritually five years ago and you're still a baby with diapers, shame on you. You're meant to know your theology. You're meant to grow up spiritually. Acts 28 is a climax of the whole book of Acts. You're in Acts 29 church. I'm expecting great things of you guys. If you're going to claim to be Acts 29, I'm expecting great things. Acts 28 is the climax. It's intriguing. We do not read of Paul's death. We do not read of Paul's martyrdom. At the end of Acts 28, we read of Paul testifying, sharing the good news, even though his death probably was not too far away. We're not told about death. We're told about life. Now look at the key words in that verse. We're told that he expounded. In the Greek, now don't get uptight. You're a Greek scholar. You can do this. In the Greek, 
It says he ectithemi. Tithemi means to place. The ek, you're a Greek scholar. Exit. Exit. Exodus. It's a compound word that means to place outside of. Or it means to expose. Something's hidden. Something's covered up. And Paul unveils. Paul reveals. What is it? Where does it go? Well, remember, Ephesians is not available. He can't go there. Galatians is not available. He can't go there. Luke's gospel probably isn't written yet. He can't go there. Certainly Revelation is not written. So where does he go? He's only got one testament. He goes to the Older Testament. He unveils. He exposes Jesus in the Older Testament. He expounds. He witnessed. It's another compound word. Diam marturo. Don't get uptight. You're a Greek scholar. Marturo. Martyr. Martyr. One who testifies. One who gives witness. There's a little preposition in front of it that intensifies it. It means he urgently testified about Jesus Christ. And then we're told that he urgently testified and expounded about the Basileia theory. Don't get uptight. You're a great scholar. Theory. Theology. The Logos word, Theo-God. The God word, the word about God. In this case, it's the Basileia theory. It's the kingdom of God. Where does he teach? Where does he expound? Where does he unveil? Where does he reveal? Not Ephesians, not Galatians, not Romans. Older Testament. The kingdom of Jesus. Now, Neil, you've got a loose screw somewhere. You're not going to tell me that he taught them about the kingdom of Jesus in the Older Testament? Yes, I am. Look at Joseph. Who is Joseph? He's number one in Egypt. Pharaoh does nothing. He lets Joseph do it all. The nations come for bread because of the famine. They bow down to Pharaoh. No, 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 no. They bow down to Joseph. The nations. He has the signet ring of power. Not only over Egypt, but over the nations. Joseph is a revelation of the kingdom of Jesus that's coming. Look at Joshua. Who is Joshua? Yeshua. Yeshua. It means he who saves. Who is Jesus? He who saves. How about David? David and Goliath? Don't tell that as a bedtime story. That's not a bedtime story. Goliath. David says, you know what, big dude? You come in the name of your gods. I got news for you. I come in the name of the one God, the one Lord, and the armies of heaven. It's not a bedtime story. 
This is big time theological warfare. What does David do? He takes them out. He becomes king. He has a great army. He conquers nation after nation, army after army, until the world, the known world, is ruled by the warrior King David. God is revealing his kingdom. And Solomon, David's son, what should we do with Solomon? Well, let's try the Hebrew. How about Shalom? Shalom means peace. That's the root of Solomon. He ushers in a rule of peace over all the nations. This is what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Paul takes them through peace after peace after peace. And then he says, and now in the last of these days we have the king of kings. Herod even named him king in the three languages that the world could read. He expounds to them the kingdom. And then finally he wants to convince them. Now these, these words are like stairs that are going up. The final stair gets Luke's heart palpitating. In the Greek it is peri Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, peri about. Jesus says to the scribes, you know what? You search the scriptures diligently because in them you believe there is life and you're right. In them is life, for they wrote peri emu about me. Luke 24. One day Luke will write it. Two disciples, Jesus dead, buried. Two disciples disappointed, discouraged, defeated. They're depressed. Jesus comes to them, resurrected. They don't recognize him. And then he gives them a walk through the Bible. From Moses to the prophets, from the beginning to the end, all of the things Peri Emu. Then he comes to the disciples in the upper room. He goes to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In American English, that's Psalms, but it's Psalms the third division of the Hebrew Bible. And he walks them through it concerning Peri Emu, concerning himself. Can you do that? Can you do that? Do you know your theology? If I give you right now the book of Job, can you teach me Jesus? Can you show me Jesus? If I give you the scroll of numbers, can you show me Jesus? Can you teach me Jesus? How about Psalm 23? That's a bit easier. 
But are you still a baby? After all these years? Is that the best you can do? You need to know your theology. You need to be growing in the knowledge of his word. And thirdly, you need to know your inclusion. Your inclusion. Romans 16, the first 23 verses. Great, 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 great. Now, you know what Christians do when they come to a list of names? The Old Testament is full of lists of names. You know what Christians do? They skip over them. They don't read them. They don't pay any attention. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Those lists are full of good news. Those lists are full of wonderful discoveries. Let me give you just a few examples from Romans 16. He goes to the deaconess. He goes to Phoebe. This is the only place in all of Scripture where you will find Phoebe. Nowhere else. But when Paul writes to the church in Rome, number one, number one, ladies, number one, ladies, not number two, not number three, number one, Phoebe. Now, what has what Phoebe said to me? It's another compound word in the Greek. It means before to stand. Literally, it means a protector who stands in front of. Or it means a provider, one who gives and does to another. That's why in my translation, she was called a patron. Some other places, she's called a, a benefactor. She is a woman of significance, a woman of character, and a woman who, when Paul thinks of the church in Rome, the first person he thinks of is Phoebe. Hot stuff. I think of Grandma Steele. Her husband, Jim, was in the army. He retired, and he became a worker for United States Postal Service. Humble guy. Just rode a, drove a little car, delivered letters and packages. But a man of knowledge, a man of spiritual knowledge, a man who became a leader and a ruling elder in the church. And when he died, Grandma Steele, and we called her Grandma Steele because she loved everybody. She hugged everybody. She kissed everybody. But when Jim died, she prayed for everybody. And everybody knew if you had a struggle or a burden or a problem, go to Grandma Steele and she will confidentially pray you through it. And then one year, Grandma Steele, in her 70s, went on a missions trip with Nancy and myself to Ukraine. She fell in love with the people. She saw the desperate need. She saw the loneliness, the darkness. When we came home, she said, Neil, I gotta go. I gotta go. I said, Grandma Steele, you're in your 70s. I gotta go. 
I gotta go. She went. She lived there and ministered there until they brought her home to go to be with the Lord. She was a Phoebe. Is there a Phoebe here? Is there a Phoebe here who, who knows her history, who knows her theology, who knows her inclusion in the kingdom, but who wants others to be included? Priscilla and Aquila, church planters, you find them in a number of places. They were driven out of Rome because of the emperor's edict. They traveled around the known world. They met Paul in Corinth. They provided lodging for him. They traveled with him to Ephesus. And when he left Ephesus, he said, look, this guy, Apollos, has just come to Christ. You disciple him. And when we come here, we find that they've returned and they've planted a church in their home. They knew their history. They knew their theology. They knew their inclusion. And they longed for others to be brought in. And think of Nikki and Harriet Barr. Nikki was a plumber, a humble plumber. They lived in a row house. No nice green lawn, no AC, a row house. When the neighbors were arguing, you could hear them through the wall. But Nicky was a man of spiritual knowledge. And that humble plumber became a leader in the largest Presbyterian church in the city of Londonderry. People knew he was quiet. But people knew that Nicky was a straight shooter. And Harriet, she was a large lady. And all she wanted to do was get you in her arms and hug the life out of you. When folks in the street had a problem, when a wife was struggling, she went to Harriet because the door was always open. When a man was unemployed, he went to Nicky because he knew that Nicky would help him find a job. Their home was a haven, a harbor of love and warmth and mercy and forgiveness. It functioned like a church. It took in stray, lonely boys like me. Is there a Harriet and Nikki here whose hearts are open and who will make their homes open so that others may be included in the kingdom? And way down at the bottom, there's a fellow called Rufus. It's called the chosen one in some places. It's called the elect one in other places. It could mean elect, but in secular Greek, the word that's used there, well, actually, if you go to Publix to the meat department, you'll see it there. Choice. Choice. It's their best cut, their best steak. That's the word that's used to describe this guy, Rufus. He's choice. He's special. He's a man of character. I think of E.C. Burnett III. 
E.C. Burnett III. He spent his adult life as a trial judge, and then became an associate judge on the South Carolina Supreme Court. For years, he was distressed by recidivism. Recidivism means a guy commits a crime, he does probation, does jail time, gets set free, and before you know it, he's back in front of the judge. It happens again and again and again. The cycle of crime and punishment. E.C. spoke to those guys in the courtroom. He spoke to them truth from God's word and hope. Judges shouldn't do that, you know. And when he retired, he joined a group of men and he took them to Tiger River Correctional Institute every Monday night and led the inmates in Bible study. Judges shouldn't do that, should they? Is there an EC here? Is there an EC here? Who's willing to go? How about you? Do you know your history? Do you know your theology? Do you know that you are included? There is someone here this morning who does not know that they are included. How do I know? I've been fighting a spiritual war all week to be prevented from speaking this morning. There is someone here, and this is your day. This is your moment. He is calling. He is speaking. He's saying, you come. You come. You trust. You let me hang that scarlet cord across your heart. Let me give you the confidence, the peace, the shalom to know your sins have been confessed and forgiven. You need faith to do that. Forgiving, forgetting all others, I take him this morning. If you're a baby and you were spiritually birthed 10 years ago, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to get a life, a real life. It's time for you to reach for maturity. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd just speak to our hearts. I pray you'd draw us closer to you. I pray you'd give us a deeper desire to know your word to know its history, to know its theology, and to be confident, Father, that we are included in your kingdom. And I pray it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.